0: A few weeks ago, my daughter Malia was filling out an application for a faith-based organization. This application had a typical question I'm sure many of you have answered many times in your life. The question was, how do you know you will go to heaven when you die? This sort of question is commonplace to us as evangelicals. We had a whole movement throughout the 80s and the 90s called evangelism explosion, which gave us so-called diagnostic questions. Like, if you were to die tonight and stand before Jesus and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you answer him? Now, I'm sure many of you have heard that question before, perhaps perhaps, you, you've been asked that question. Perhaps you've even asked that question of someone else. I have heard this question countless times in my life, but as Malia pondered her answer out loud, I mused over the nature of the question. You see, I've heard this question many times, but this time, something wasn't sitting right. Then it dawned on me. This question, why well-intended, is misguided. This question, why well-intended, is misguided. See, this question is preoccupied with our final destination, whereas the gospel, the gospel message, is concerned with the nature of life, specifically eternal life. As Dallas Willard noted, the only definition of eternal life found in Scripture is in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus offers us the definition. And how does he define it? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As evangelicals, we have a tendency to think Uh, Of eternal life in a Billy Graham crusade sort of way, right? In other words, we have a tendency to think of eternal life as a a future hope. Do you know that 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 you're going to go to heaven when you die? That's how we tend to think of it, and indeed it is that. It is a future hope, but it's not just a future hope. Jesus tells us that it's much more than that. This is eternal life that they may know. Know what? No not what, but who? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and who else? Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As you sit In your seat, as you occupy this moment in space and time, you are basking in the eternal life. Yes, eternal life is a future hope, but it is so much more than that. Eternal life is a present reality. It's a present reality. Our our current sermon series, Follow Me, What Jesus Says About Discipleship, is really an exploration of eternal life. It's an explanation of what it means to, to, to really know that you know Jesus and what it means to follow after Him. Our opening verses, or, or oh, sorry, our opening verse sets the scene for, for, for this narrative that we're going to explore this morning. Look down at verse 25 with me. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds accompanied him. Scholars commonly refer to Luke chapters 9 through 19 as the travel narrative. This narrative chronicles Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem and the many interactions and conversations he had along the way. You see, Jesus was surrounded not just by his disciples, but by a whole host of Jewish people. Jewish people from all walks of life. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and common people, rich and poor alike. Jesus was traveling alongside the religious establishment as they made their way towards Jerusalem for the Passover. And while they were traveling, Jesus turned and he said to them, three things, three things. Jesus said to them, he said, if you want to follow me, then you need to be willing to hate, you need to be willing to die, and you need to be willing to surrender it all. You need to be willing to hate. You need to be willing to die. You need to be willing to surrender it all. Now, well, this is not a message for the faint of heart. It's not a message for the faint of the heart or, or the casual listener. This is a harsh word. But I have often found that the harshest sayings of Jesus, if we're able to receive them, are filled with unimaginable grace and limitless mercy. So this morning, we're going to unpack this passage with three propositions. Am I willing to hate? Am I willing to die? And am I willing to surrender at all? Let's just take a moment and just ask the Lord to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Father, would you just open our eyes and open our hearts this morning, do a work in us through your word, your name, amen. Verse 26, the first question this morning is, am I willing to hate? Am I willing to hate myself and even, or sorry, my family and even myself? Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, happy Father's Day, by the way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hate is awfully strong language, right? Hate is awfully strong language, so I think it's helpful for us to consult with the original languages to understand what Jesus is really getting at. Do you, do you know what the word, what the, do you know what hate means in the Greek? Do you know what hate means in the Greek? It means hate. It means hate. Scholars tell us that the Greek word translated here as hate is the complete opposite of that other Greek word that we are so fond of, agape, which is translated as love, right? Love, this, this selfless, sacrificial love of God for fallen sinners. Now, in a room full of intelligent people like yourselves, I'm sure many of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can Jesus call us to hate when Jesus calls us to love? Aren't we supposed to love people, not hate them? This would be a legitimate inquiry on your part. In fact, Jesus exhorts us to love no less than four times in the Gospel of Luke alone. So it seems that we have a paradox on our hands. We have a paradox. And the question is, how do we resolve it? Well, clearly, clearly this is a hyperbolic statement, right? But what's the point? Why is Jesus speaking in hyperbole? Well, why do any of us speak in hyperbole, right? I mean, think about it this way. Imagine it this way. Imagine it's a hot day in the middle of July. And you say to yourself, I am dying for an ice cream cone from Happy Cow or that other place on 106, if you're okay with compromising your standards. I'm not gonna say which one's better. I don't wanna get in trouble. Now, are you really at death's doorstep? Are you really at death's doorstep because it's 100 degrees outside and you desire a cold treat to help you cope with the heat? Of course not, right, of course not. Well, then, why are you speaking hyperbolically? Because you're using overstatement to convey the intensity with which you desire that cool, delicious ice cream cone. Right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. For those of you who are offended by my comments concerning Jordans, don't worry, it's just hyperbole. (laughs) Jesus' hyperbolic language reveals three things to us. Three things. First, the call to hate is a radical call to disinvest ourselves of our earthly social status. One commentator writes this, he says, By hate, Jesus means to make family such a distant second in priority relative to him that it seems you hate them by comparison. In other words, for the Christian, the family cannot be an idol. We care for our family, yes, we provide for them as a demonstration of faith, but discipleship will call you to leave family and to reprioritize them in ways completely contrary to the world's system. Now, as a modern day people, especially modern people living in America, we, we, we grew up in our families, but we're conditioned to leave them, Right? We grew up in our families, but we're conditioned to leave them. We graduate high school, we go to college, we move to a different city, we establish our career, we start a family of our own. I, I did that, and I'm sure many of you have as well. So, so Jesus' words might not seem that radical to us, but, but for an ancient people living in an ancient world, Jesus' call was unfathomable, unfathomable. Family was everything in the ancient world. You needed your family to survive. Apart from your family, you had absolutely no social status. Hence the folly of the prodigal son, which is incidentally recorded in the very next chapter. You would never hate your family. But that's exactly what Jesus calls those around him to do. Second, the call to hate is actually a radical call to love. It's a radical call to love. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus exhorts his followers to to, to love their enemies. And just a few verses back from our current passage, in the very same chapter, one scholar contends it's the the very same conversation, Jesus exhorts his followers to love the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind. In the former exhortation, Jesus concludes with, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And in the latter exhortation, he says, concerning the the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, he says, You will be blessed if you love them, since they do not have the means to repay you. So what is Jesus getting at here? What is he getting at here? The call to hate is a paradoxical call to love others who would otherwise not consider. It is a call to love others who we would otherwise not consider. In other words, the call to hate is a radical call to love the unlovable. I grew up just outside of Philadelphia, Northeast. And uh, I grew up going to a church, Calvary Baptist, in Bristol, Pennsylvania. And um, if my parents did anything right in rearing us, they made sure our butts were in pews every week. And um, my sister and I were having a conversation a while back, maybe a year or so ago. And we were just reminiscing about Calvary and how thankful we were for Calvary. And uh, you, you can go ahead and put that up, Josh so this is this is a church directory picture it's probably 1984 1985 um that's my sister april my brother matthew that's me in the middle there i i I remember this day vividly um i I remember my, my my parachute pants that my sister bought me i was wearing those in that picture now The Lyles were a staple at the church that I grew up in. But interesting fact, we weren't that lovable. There was all kinds of issues and problems. And in some ways, we were kind of a burden to our church. Now, my sister said to me, she, she said, You know what I love about Calvary, and specifically, she was talking about our pastor at the time, Pastor Schmidt, and this is a big church, it's not a little church. This is a church where it's very easy to fall in between the cracks. My sister said to me, She said, You know what? We were the most unlovable family, but we were the most loved. We were the most unlovable family, but we were the most loved. I can't tell you how much we benefited from that church. I can't tell you how indebted I am to that body of believers to this day. The the, the near countless numbers of people who really just built into my life and made personal investments and significant sacrifices to love on me and to care for me, to love on our family and care for our family. It was amazing. I would not be here today if it was not for those people who loved the unlovable. So you can go ahead and take that down. So it kind of begs the question, who are you loving that's unlovable? Do you have any unlovable people in your life? Right? Because it's easy to love the people who love you. Right? Jesus said that. It's easy to love the people who love you. But if you don't have any unlovable people in your life then I can contend you you might not be following Jesus. If you do everything you can to avoid people who rub you the wrong way, you might not be loving the way Jesus has called you to love. Because He has called us not to love just those who love us, but to love the unlovable. Finally, the call to hate is a radical Uh, is a call to radically reorientate our personal agenda. A call to radically reorientate our personal agenda. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life. If anyone comes to me and does does not hate even his own life. Here, life translates the Greek word psyche, which literally means soul. In other words, the totality of our being, the very essence of who we are, we are to hate. Now again, again, Jesus is using hyperbole. So what's he really getting at here? Again, a look at the broader context of Luke can help us make sense of Jesus' harsh words. In Luke 11.43, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No serving can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to, the one, to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Money. Luke 20, verse 46, Jesus says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Jesus' call to hate oneself was a call to reorder disordered loves. A call to to reorder disordered loves. Position, power, pride, and money are strong temptations that can waylay any of us and lead us away from following after Jesus. Again, a look at the larger context of Luke. Just a couple chapters from where we are now in chapter 18. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit what kind of life? Eternal life. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, so forth and so on. And, and he said, all, all these things I have kept since the time of I was a child. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all of your possessions, sell all of your stuff, and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Now, this is clearly not a case of hyperbole. Not a case of hyperbole. In the parallel account found in Mark ten 21, we're told that Jesus felt love for him. Jesus felt love for him. Just as Matthew had left everything behind to follow Jesus in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was calling this man to leave behind his earthly treasure to follow after him. Well, perhaps like Matthew, we would know the rich young ruler's name if he had just been willing to let go. But he wasn't. He couldn't let go. The world is filled with the haves and the have-nots. The world is filled with the haves and the have-nots. And the temptations of power, position, power, pride, and money are a grave danger to the haves. If you count yourself blessed enough to be counted amongst the haves, you need to be on your guard. If you got a nice big house, multiple cars, lots of toys, money in the bank, you need to be on your guard. You're in a very dangerous place. And for the have-nots, you also need to be on your guard. You also need to be on your guard because the temptations of position, power, pride, and money are equally threatening to you. But how can that be? You may be wondering. How how can I be tempted by things that are so far outside of my means? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. As as a have not, how do the temptations of, of position, power, pride, and money threaten your life? The answer, the green monster named Envy. The green monster named Envy. Envy is a very dangerous thing to you if you are a have-not. Tim and Kathy Keller, in their devotional on the Psalms, they address the dangers of envy writing. to to Envy is to want someone else's life. It's it's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but but that you do, and God hasn't been fair. This spiritual self-pity Which forgets your sin and what you truly deserve from God, it drains all the joy out of your life, making it impossible for you to enjoy what you do have. The power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it was not enough. What's the lesson here? The lesson is be on your guard. Be on your guard. The, the only thing more dangerous than being a have is being a have-not. And the only thing more dangerous than being a have-not is being a have. Follow him? In other words, the, the thing that is most dangerous to you is the thing which you are. If you're a have, the temptation that faces you, the temptation that faces you, Is that you might have a divided heart. If you have not, the temptation that faces you is envy. So, to follow Jesus, we need to be willing to hate. And the question before you this morning is are you willing to hate? Are you willing to hate? Are you willing to disinvest yourself of your earthly social status? Are you willing to love not just those who are easy to love, but those who are unlovable? Are you willing to reorder your disordered loves? Those are some pretty heavy questions. Those are some pretty heavy questions and they beg an even heavier question. And this takes us to our second question this morning. Am I willing to die? Am I willing to die to myself? Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, As readers who, who, who know the whole story, we're aware of the foreshadowing here, right? We know what's about to happen. Jesus was surrounded by a whole host of unwitting Jewish people headed towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. However, we know that Jesus was headed towards the ultimate Passover, where on the cross he would become the ultimate Passover lamb. Now here he calls us, in verse 27, to follow in His footsteps. In Matthew 11:29, the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus called us to take up His yoke. He called us to take up his yoke. Remember Pastor Brian explained that Jesus' yoke was a metaphor for his teaching. Here in Luke 14, Jesus calls us to take up our cross. Now, if the call to take up his yoke is a call to take up his teaching, then a call to take up our cross is is a call to take up his example. One commentator writes, and he says, By bear your own cross, Jesus means we must join him in his sufferings. Every disciple has a cross to bear. We must pick it up and carry it daily. That cross is our dying It's our self-denial. It's joining the Savior in his sufferings so that we can advance the kingdom. Jesus teaches that cross-carrying is essential, not incidental to the Christian life. This call to take up one's cross, this would have left the ancient people surrounding him with their collective jaws scraping on the ground. For ancient people, the cross was not the romanticized emblem of endearment that it is to us today. Incidentally, Christians didn't even use the cross for a Christian symbol for like 300 years because it was a present-day horror. It was a present-day horror. Craig Keener, in his comedy, writes, a condemned criminal would carry the cross, usually amid veering jeering mobs, no one would ever choose that fate for oneself. No one. This is why Paul's acknowledgement of of the humiliation that Jesus suffered at the cross is so significant. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul wrote, and he said, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul also called us to follow in that very same example. Just a few verses before, he said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to have the same cross-carrying humility of Christ. We are to have the same cross-carrying humility as Christ. What Jesus was called to in reality, we are called to metaphorically. And because Jesus died in reality on our behalf, we can die metaphorically on his behalf. Now, this begs a question, what does it look like to take up your cross? What does that look like? Well, I can't tell you. I, I have no idea. It looks different for all of us. It looks different for all of us. For, for some of us, maybe it's, it's loving an unlovable spouse. Maybe it's choosing singleness. Maybe it's rendering your tax payment unto the IRS. Maybe it's letting go of an audacious trinket that's competing for your affections. I don't know what it is. I can't answer that question for you. I can't, however, tell you that we all have a cross to bear. If you don't know what your cross is, I want to encourage you, go to Jesus and ask him, If there is one prayer that I can assure you he will answer quickly, it's that one. If you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what's my cross? He will waste no time in letting you know. And it will be very obvious. This takes us to our third and final question. Am I willing and prepared to surrender it all? Am I willing and prepared to surrender it all? Look at verse 28. While the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be My disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be My disciple. Now, Jesus uses two fairly self-explanatory parables to illustrate the cost of following him. There's there's some nuance between the two, but in the time that we have left, I I just want us to focus on the main point, and that's this. It's the cost of discipleship. Both parables illustrate that following Jesus will cost you something. Did you know that? Did you know that following Jesus will cost you something? I mean, remember what Paul said. He said, you are not your... Own. You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. What does it look like to glorify God in your body? Well, Jesus has given us a pretty good idea so far, right? He's given us a pretty good idea. We're to de- disinvest ourselves, verse 26. We're to take up our cross, verse 27. And now here in verse 33, we see we're called to renounce all that we have. Renounce everything we have. Now, to renounce all that we have doesn't mean that Jesus expects us to, to you know, cast off every worldly possession and live, live as paupers. It doesn't mean that. It does, however, mean that we are to relinquish ownership of those things to him. It means that all of our worldly possessions are to be converted into assets we invest into his kingdom. Discipleship requires us to renounce everything. Just just like the servants invested the talents entrusted to them by their master in Luke 19. That's how we're to live with everything that we have. Every asset that we possess, whether it's monetary or family, whatever it may be, we're to invest that in the kingdom, to relinquish it to the Lord. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, what about free grace? What about free grace? Doesn't Jesus offer us grace freely? You are correct, he does. However, We often confuse free grace with what Diedrich Bonhoeffer refers to as costly grace. Bonhoeffer writes and he says, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. It's grace without my cross, and it's grace without your cross. What is your faith costing you? What is your faith costing you? It's a reasonable question. If it's not costing you much, then it might not be worth much. If your faith isn't costing you much, then you might have a cheap faith. You might have a counterfeit faith. Bonhoeffer continues, and he says, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his Son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his Son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us all. We are called to take up our metaphorical cross because Jesus took up our real cross. Yes, grace is free, but there are some terms and conditions. Grace is free, but there are some terms and conditions, and many Christians are guilty of not reading the fine print. And this morning, this morning you're getting a fine print sermon. There's no pride in that. <laughs> Absolutely none. This, trust me, this sermon is delivered in fear and trembling. I, man, I had to do a lot of introspection as I studied this passage this week. And I've had to ask these questions of myself, and I'm still asking these questions of myself. All this begs the question, are you willing Are you willing? I'd like to go back and and focus on a single phrase that Jesus uses three times in this passage. Three times he says, cannot be my disciple. Three times he says that. That is a qualifier. Three times he says, cannot be my disciple. And in all three instances, this phrase is connected to the the three questions that we're asking. Three questions that we're, we're seeking to answer this morning. Am I willing to hate? Am I willing to die? And Am I willing to discern it at all? that phrase connected to all three of those questions. Your status as a disciple of Jesus rests on how you answer those questions. If you answer any of them negatively, no, I am not willing, then you cannot be Jesus' disciple. And if you don't like that, if you just want to live out a casual faith, well, you're going to have to take that up with Jesus because they're his words, not mine. I've tried to be as honest with this passage as I possibly can be. If you've noticed, I've referenced other sections of Luke. Why? Because I think this is what Luke is really driving at in his gospel. I think that's the message of his gospel. You're going to have to wrestle with Jesus over those questions. I want to end a little bit differently this morning. I invite the worship team to come back up. I don't wanna end this morning in prayer. I wanna end this morning in song. And uh, I, I want you to just, as you kind of contemplate these questions in your own heart, just just view this song and treat this song as a, as a prayer. Jesus closes his call with a final parable In verse 34, he says, Salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear we're not gonna do a deep dive into this parable this morning. It's a very familiar parable. We all know what it means. If it don't walk like a duck, talk like a duck, act like a duck, well, then it's a pretty worthless duck, right? If salt loses its characteristic saltiness, the very thing that makes it salt, well, then it's pretty worthless salt. Likewise, if we lose our Christ-likeness Then we're going to be pretty worthless Christians. I think we get that. It's pretty straightforward. With that being said, I want to leave us musing upon the implications of this parable. There is a lot of talk about revival nowadays. A lot of talk about revival. I hear it all the time. We need a revival in America. All the time I'm hearing this language. I'm sure you are too. I've heard it once. I've heard it a thousand times. In all fairness, we do need a revival in America. Amen? Amen. We do. We need a revival in America. However, if you research all the great revivals in history, whether it's the Reformation, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Azusa Street Revival, or the Asbury Revival that's unfolding even now, you are going to find one common characteristic, one common characteristic in all of those movements. They all started in the church. They all started with people claiming to be Christians. We all want some sort of great revival to overwhelm New England and sweep across the nation, but in order for that to happen, we need to be revived. Listen, behind every wayward culture is a lukewarm church. We say we want revival, but but we're too busy casting stones in a culture war from houses made of glass to see our own need to be revived. Jesus isn't talking to outsiders here in Luke 14. Every one of them is on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He is not talking to outsiders. He's talking to insiders. He's talking to us. For a real sustaining revival to happen in our culture, a sustaining revival needs to happen in this room. And for a sustaining revival to happen in this room, a sustaining revival needs to happen in our hearts. Because sustaining revival largely rests on how I and you answer these questions. Am I willing to hate? Am I willing to die? Am I willing to surrender at all? Is this sort of a revival for which I hope we can all say amen.